Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and we're here midpoint in the week. It is, of course, Wednesday, the 16th of June, for those of you not keeping track. And <laughs> welcome once again to another edition of Lifeline. How can you treat, keep track of any of this these days? We were having a conversation earlier today about some of the challenges related to when to mask, when not to mask. That is the question. The state is open, but does anybody really know what's going on? Probably not. Well, any rate, great to have you with us today. We've got a, a pretty important program today, and we're going to kind of peel back a multi-layered onion, as they want to be, and uh, and discuss some subject matter that, quite frankly, all of us need to pay some very close attention to. I know what you're thinking. You're hearing him play the theme song of The Godfather. He's got to be up to something, and you would be absolutely right. Let's uh, perhaps just go right down to cases. Today, on an ever-increasing basis, there's a growing threat to our American culture, civil society, and even our moral authority as a democracy from ongoing acts of racism, prejudice, and violence. And certainly, to be sure, in the last year, we've seen this on a rise across America. Everything from anti-Semitism to anti-Asian violence to anti-Latino tropes, and most notably, of course, the pain that our African-American community has felt, is quite frankly, and somebody needs to be the adult in the room and say it, it's unacceptable, it's un-American, and it has to stop. Now, I know that we have dealt with the topic of racism extensively, in the past, and as long as it is with us, we will need to revisit this topic. But I want to take a little bit of a different angle today to help you perhaps understand just how widespread and how insidious this really is, and how it can masquerade even in forms of entertainment that on the surface seem to be harmless, but in the end cause great pain and create deep scars. How widespread and insidious is racism in America? Well, as I mentioned before, prejudice, racism, and ethnic snurs and violence are rooted in stereotypes and misconceptions. My guest tonight is a successful trial attorney, best-selling author, and has spent a good part of his writing career battling these negative stereotypes in another community that, on face value, you might think has never suffered racism or prejudice, but in fact has. The stereotypes that we're going to discuss today quite frankly obscure the contribution of this group of people in America and leads to painful tropes that, as I mentioned before, in the long list of people that are targets of stereotypes and racism just simply needs to stop. My guest, as I mentioned, is a trial attorney. He is the author of a couple of best-selling books, including The Iron Butterfly and Mezzogiorno Trilogy. And he joins us now to discuss an issue related to, as you heard in the music a moment ago, anti-Italian 
racism. And I know as you're about to say, oh, wait a minute, Craig, how bad can it be compared to all the others? Let me help you perhaps understand the basis for this conversation is that all types of racism and stereotypes and prejudice against any member of American society is unacceptable. And we need to start calling it out. We need to call out the big events. We need to call out the small events. Understanding that collectively all of it together does nothing but cause pain to our nation and a loss of credibility on the world stage. Andrew Anselmi joins us now by phone. And, Counselor, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. I, I'm sure that there are some eavesdropping on our conversation that are going to think, wait a minute, anti-Italian-American? Well, what exactly are you guys talking about here? Give us a little bit of a background, if you would, and how did this come on your personal radar screen, and why do you feel as if, at this juncture, with everything that's going on in our nation today, that it's important that Americans have this dialogue? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Craig. It's a real privilege to be with you and your listeners. Uh, it really, it, I've been a lawyer now and a, and a writer uh, for about 30 years. And I grew up in an Italian-American household in New Jersey. And lo and behold, my now deceased, deceased father was a first-generation Italian-American who ran a large construction company. And so despite you know, his many successes and his his charities and his great standing in the community otherwise, inevitably the stereotype that, or the perception was that he must have been in the mafia. How else could he have succeeded the way he did? Uh, how, what else would an Italian in construction do? So it was something that I felt indirectly uh, by virtue of what I believe my father suffered. And it was really indicative or an extension of a bias and a prejudice that goes back to the mid-19th century against Italian-Americans and was really extended, uh, elongated by The Godfather and The Sopranos, both great works of art, but they, the charismatic, gunslinging gangsters that they heralded really obscured the achievements of hard-working law-abiding Italians. So when you go across the country now, wherever you are, you say that you're Italian-American, if anyone asks, the first thing that comes to the other person's mind or lips is the Godfather and Vito or Michael Corleone. So that's the sort of thing, that's sort of the general rubric under which this prejudice uh, has existed. And, you know, this exists for some, perhaps, in such a fashion that by seemingly on the surface be so subtle, it's almost minuscule to be dismissive, and yet demonstrative of the kind of vein of pain that runs through generations, and that, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, Andrew, whether it's anti-Asian sentiment, as we've seen in, in the last year in the wake of COVID or, or ongoing issues that have been suffered by the African-American community in this nation you know, crossing centuries, it's just not acceptable. And to acknowledge the fact that what we think is a bit of a joke, you know, in your case, uh, you're from New Jersey, your dad was successful in the construction business, and your last name ends in a vowel. Clearly, you have to be in part of the mafia. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a wink and a nod, and yet 
these things cause pain, and and it and it. So I, I want people to understand: it doesn't matter what the community is. These kinds of stereotypes, we need to call them out. And I think now that this is centered into or entered into the national dialogue, as we as a nation and as a people are beginning to sort of do a better job, I hope, at holding each other accountable for the things that we say and the way we view other people, that even stereotypes that on the surface seem to be uh, incidental or inconsequential um, can create tremendous pain. And you, you point to the impact of films like The Godfather and and even more recently The Sopranos which I know when that series was on um, network television I used to get comments from people all the time and people that knew me well would say gee do Italians really talk that way or do you really feel that way toward other minority groups or are people really involved in those kind of activities within the Italian American community and of course I always had to come back and say well none of the Italians that I know are involved in any of that and it's shameful when you have to defend your own people and and you look at that up against some of the influences that we have had, speaking specifically of Italian-Americans or Italians down through the millennia. I mean, my goodness. Uh, number one, we wouldn't be having this conversation together at this moment if it weren't for two great Italians. Uh, Guglielmo Marconi, of course, the inventor of radio, and Antonio Meucci, who was the true inventor of the telephone. So right there and then, we wouldn't even be having this, this conversation at this moment if it weren't for the inventiveness of these two individuals. Sadly, not only do we not see many of them celebrated, but in fact, Italian-Americans end up becoming vilified. Now, it may not be to the degree to which some other minority groups, particularly in present-day dialogue, uh, are, are suffering, but it is pain, it is racism, nevertheless. It's interesting that you mention Nucci and, and Marconi. Uh, I've written a piece recently in which I use as a springboard a couple of the scenes from The Godfather. They're powerful scenes. The very first scene from The Godfather, from the first film, is a, a face of a man coming out of the darkness, and his name is Amerigo Bonacera. And if you remember at the beginning of the movie, he's asking The Godfather for justice. He says, I believe in America. But he goes on to say how oh, America has failed him, the justice system has failed him, because his daughter was assaulted by her boyfriend and her boyfriend's friend, and he needs the godfather for real justice. And Don Corleone played um, so brilliantly uh, in that movie by Marlon Brando, starts by saying, you show me disrespect. You don't so much as invite my wife over for a cup of coffee, yet you ask me for this. And that's a very memorable scene from The Godfather. Well, what people, because of powerful scenes like that, people don't know, for instance, that Amadeo Giannini, after the earthquake of 1906 in San Francisco, he lent people money over two barrels in a crate, anyone who was interested in rebuilding their homes. That was the Bank of Italy. It started in the saloon. It became Bank of America. And he shared it until his death. And if you want to talk about an ask that had real respect, during the Manhattan Project, Enrico Fermi was asked to develop the first nuclear reactor, which he did. 
And very few people realize these facts because they're so caught up in these larger-than-life figures. And, and, and it, it bears noting, Craig, that every, like you said, every discrimination, every prejudice takes on a different form. The odd thing about what's happened to Italian-Americans is it has, in large part, been perpetuated by Italian-Americans who embrace these figures. They love the Godfather and Tony Soprano because they're above the law. They're larger than life. And what they don't realize is that they're contributing to that stereotype. So there, there are scores of other Italian-Americans. You wouldn't even know they're Italian-American. Bruce Springsteen, Madonna, Lady Gaga, uh, Paul Taliabu, former commissioner of football, Bart Giamatti in baseball, all walks of life. Mike Pompeo, our current first lady, is Italian-American. Her uh, maiden name, or her father's name was Jacobs, which was uh, converted or changed from Jacopa. So we really don't get that eye cast on these folks' Italian-Americanism because the space is completely occupied by these epic movies and series, The Godfather, The Sopranos, and, and the other movies that Martin Scorsese um, also directed and produced. And, and you know, Counselor, you, you point to a very valid issue, and that is that sometimes even we within the community, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll give a passing glance and say, well, yeah, but that's just Hollywood, that's entertainment, and boy, wasn't this film exciting, or wasn't that an incredible depiction? And of course, when you look at the kind of blockbuster films that have literally gone down in cinematic history, like The Goodfellas, The Godfather in 1972, and the, the entire trilogy, and more recently, as I referred to, uh, The Sopranos of a decade ago um, we, we sometimes celebrate the 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 cinematic milestones that these productions create not recognizing that they're also continuing to do significant harm and again I want to underscore the fact that while today we're using uh, anti-italian American uh, tropes and racism as an example I do so because for many listening into including those within the Italian American community we may not even perceive that this is going on and yet I would argue to you that the subtle fashion in which we allow minute slides or acceptance of clear um, Hollywood creations uh, or exaggerations and allow that to taint an entire community, no matter what that minority group may be or where they may be from, when we allow the small things to stand without challenging them, over time they will grow into large fissures that end up dividing us and splitting us as a nation. And, you know, the success of this country is that we are all immigrants. At one point or another, everybody that is currently standing on American soil can say, I am one, unless you're Native American, I can point to, at some point in my family history, the first who made it to this shore. And if we're going to really show appreciation for the tremendous gift and privilege we have been given to either come here or be born here or, you know, be a part of the American experience and this wonderful experiment, then we need to take it seriously. We need to take each other seriously and we need to do a better job at caring for one another. We're visiting today with attorney, best-selling author, Andrew Anselmi. He is the author of two books, The Iron Butterfly and Mezzogiorno Trilogy. But his heart has really been broken 
for the Italian-American community because of this association with the negative imagery of mobsters and people involved with the mafia, if your last name ends in a vowel, and it helps us to, I think, in our conversation today, better understand just how dangerous these stereotypes can be, how insidious they are, and that we should all play an active role in calling them out. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation with best-selling author and trial attorney Andrew Anselmi as this edition of Lifeline continues right after an update on traffic. I hope that we could come here and reason together. And as a reasonable man, I'm willing to do whatever's necessary to find a peaceful solution to this problem. There's Marlon Brando in his role as the Godfather. And yes, that is a big part of our dialogue today. Coming together to find a reasonable solution. And I think the solution is that we need to call out stereotypes wherever they exist and begin to be more deliberate in our thinking and the things that we say. Let's um, continue our dialogue now with the best-selling author and trial lawyer, Andrew Anselmi. And uh, Andrew, as you mentioned, um, your your family's own experiences in dealing with prejudice um, is kind of the springboard for your heightened awareness of this and your desire to want to call attention to it so that we can all, quite frankly, be better Americans. Give us your understanding in terms of, and we've kind of alluded to this, uh, Hollywood has played a major role in not only shaping some of these stereotypes and certainly uh, perpetuating them in a fashion that they almost become ingrained in American culture. I think, for example, that uh, The Godfather has got to clearly be, if not the top uh, 100, maybe even the top 50 cinematic productions of all time uh, the, the the trilogy made millions of dollars and, and oddly enough was produced by an italian and and maybe that ought to tell us something that uh, you know the old adage uh, judgment begins in the house of the lord meaning that maybe even ourselves as italian americans are sometimes responsible for unwittingly perpetrating some of these false stereotypes absolutely i think when mario puzo was once interviewed about The Godfather, he said it was a story of a king and his three sons, which, again, glorifies the the story as it was told with the violence, with the um, medieval threats. Now, who could ever forget the scene when the Hollywood producer won't give uh, The Godfather's godson, Johnny Fontaine, the lead in the, in the upcoming movie, and when he, he refuses The Godfather's counselor, uh, when he flies out to California to make the request, he wakes up the next morning with a severed horse head in his bed. So th- this isn't the way. This isn't the way we are. This isn't the way the Italian Americans are. But it makes for great drama. Who can forget the blood curdling scream of that director when he woke up under his silk sheets that morning in his mansion with a severed head um, at his feet in a pool of blood? So they. It, it's really a combination of just picking uh, great actors and and delivering with charisma and really championing things that none of us can argue with, family, good food. And you put all that together and the stereotype moves forward. It's a stereotype that goes back to the 19th century. I don't think most people realize that in New Orleans, in 1891, you had 11 Italian-Americans lynched. Uh, after the sheriff had been um, had been killed, and they were lynched publicly, I think it's the largest public lynching of 
of anyone uh, in the United States. It led to, a year later, ironically enough, the uh, celebration or the dedication of Columbus Day as a concession to Italian-Americans and to the Italian government, which now, ironically, um, is under attack. But you said it yourself, Craig, in, in the beginning of the show, and I love the image of peeling back the onion and finding better truth. I have actually used it in Iron Butterfly. It's an image. You've got three college-age uh, students in the Roman Forum in the 80s, and they're arguing over truth and better truth. And it's when one of the protagonists, Edward, is trying to go back to his mother's hometown to find the secrets of her past. And that leads to another truth, which was an untold truth, which is the cruelties that were committed upon Italians in Italy by the Nazis after the Italians switched sides. Um, and so that's largely what Iron Butterfly is about. And we never, we never heard about that, uh, partly because Italian-Americans were ashamed of their former alliance with the Germans, and they didn't want to be prosecuting uh, Germans for the atrocities for fear that they might also be prosecuted for what they had done. So that's yet another one of those instances where what you refer to, Craig, peeling back the onion, I try to reflect on an iron butterfly, as is the faith journey um, that Edward Bennett himself takes in the book toward a richer understanding of what it means uh, to be a believer um, and to be a follower of God. I was struck even recently, this has been in the news over the last three or four days, uh, that there had been apparently even allegations uh, bumping about within the previous administration related to some notion that Italy was responsible for throwing the election. <laughs> and I heard that and I thought, <laughs> you know, if we, if we stood and made that comment against Canada, the hue and cry would be so widespread, and yet it, it, in making a remark of that sort, in my mind, was demonstrative of a tremendous degree of ignorance, considering the fact, and you just touched on it, that Italy, in fact, did repent, it did change sides halfway through the war, and by 1943, we were on the Allies' side, having realized the wrong of having followed, literally followed Benito Mussolini into war and, and his unholy alliance with the Axis powers. Well, we woke up and smelled the proverbial cocoa, so to speak, and changed sides, and Italy has been a strong European ally of the United States since mid-1943, we have cooperated with everything from the Gulf War to even having troops boots on ground in military intervention in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, assisting the United States. And then to make an accusation like that, that somehow the Italians via satellite through the election. I mean, in my mind, that is not only a highly ignorant statement, but quite frankly, goes to the very core of what we're discussing today. And that is some people hear that and laugh about it and think it's no big deal. But if that was a, a, a comment made against one of our other allies, just listen to the kind of hue and cry that you would have heard of how upset people were. Well, you know, at the end of the day, what I'm trying to underscore here is there's not just certain types of racism that are bad and other types of racism that are okay. If we're going to look at this from a uniquely Christian perspective, all of it is wrong. All of it is bad. 
All of it has its roots in evil, and we must stand up against it wherever we see acts of racism, prejudice, or stereotypes being promoted. With me today is best-selling author and trial attorney Andrew Anselmi. He is the author of best-selling books The Iron Butterfly and Mezzogiorno Trilogy. We're talking about the insidious impact that tropes, stereotypes have in our culture and society how widespread and oftentimes how even subtle they can be and how that even in their subtlest of forms, they can be terribly harmful and terribly dangerous. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our discussion as this Wednesday edition of Lifeline continues. It doesn't make any difference to me what a man does for living, I understand. I have a sentimental weakness for my children and I spoil them, as you can see. They talk when they should listen. <laughs> yeah, uh, not only a line that every parent can relate to, but I think uh, also is uh, uh, illuminatory toward our conversation today. We're we're addressing the issue of of the ways in which racism, prejudice, stereotypes can be widespread and and insidious, almost to the point of being uh, d- disappearing, sort of into the fabric of of culture, the fabric of what we view as entertainment, and how sometimes, perhaps unwittingly. We are even self-contributory to these problems. Best-selling author and trial attorney Andrew Anselmi is with us today. He is the author of two best-selling books, including The Iron Butterfly and Mezzogiorno Trilogy. And, uh, Counselor, when I speak to the issue of unwittingly being contributory in our actions or even in our silence toward these issues related to um, sort of stoking the fires of, of, of stereotypes and, and ultimately um, incorrect, inaccurate imagery of any people group. I, I have to wonder, let's take, for example, we mentioned earlier The Sopranos. When I was first, uh, The Sopranos were first brought to my attention and I watched one or two in the series beyond the, the shocking degree of widespread violence I was struck by the fact that I think almost without exception, aside from a handful of just bit performers or supporting players, every key actor in that television series were without an exception Italian-Americans. And I have to wonder, if we kind of allow these stereotypes to stand, as it would be perhaps with any other community that doesn't speak up when they should, aren't we in the end almost participatory in all of this? We're helping to facilitate all of this? There's no doubt about it, Craig. I can't tell you how many people, my friends growing up in the New Jersey, New York area, where I would say, sure, is there organized crime? Is there crime by Italians? I'm not going to deny that, but it's not nearly as pervasive or as, as glorious as they make it out in the movies. And to a person, you hear another Italian American say, oh, well, you don't know. I grew up with people like that. Uh, you hear that in New Jersey. Oh, that's my neighborhood. I know, I know Tony Soprano. I know his friends. Because somehow, Tony became very cool. He's probably one of the most popular, God rest his soul, James, James Galdafini, but he's probably one of the most popular, if not the most popular character in television history. Because he had charisma, he had this sort of odd voice and cunning that people loved, and they loved to be around him. I, 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 read, I was reading the other day of certain actors who were upset 
that they didn't get parts on The Sopranos. They tried to get parts on The Sopranos. It's, it was almost like being part uh, of the Yankees of, of a sporting team. This is who we as a country and in spectating. These were our players. These these were the cool guys that we wanted to be around. And right in the middle of that is Italian Americans, and that's the frustrating. That has been the frustrating part for me and then they all say oh it's just entertainment don't worry about it they either say that or they say well you don't understand because you grew up in a privileged household i grew up with people like this and that's how it gets extended and like i said this goes back to the mid-19th century when you know the italians were the southern european immigrants who came to a country that was largely northern uh european and and they were, they were the laborers, they were the guineas, the wops, the dagos, um, all the way through. And, and at a time when it might have expired or run its course, we have these blockbuster films come along in the second half of the 20th century that have just carried the stereotype, carried the discrimination forward, and really obscured a lot of great Italian-American virtues and accomplishments. You know, I, I'm I'm struck by the notion a little leaven leaveneth the whole bread uh, or the whole lump or uh, you know one bad apple spoils the whole barrel. That notion that yes, there are degrees to which there has been evidence of participation in organized crime, and there have been bad influences, uh, largely many that quite frankly created a, a a lifestyle because in southern Italy, particularly in the late 1800s and at the turn of uh, now two centuries ago, uh, there was tremendous suffering. Uh, northern Italy was considered to kind of be the uh, the money center and everything from Naples south was all basically agricultural. And you had some of the poorest of the poor. And I'm not making excuses, but there were those who got involved in crime and then found out it would be more successful if you worked together as a means of survival. And then as the Italian police began to kind of bring pressure upon them, they found it easy to hop on a boat, come across to America and take advantage over here and bring with them some of those those violence and criminal tendencies. But we're talking about just a small percentile. And as you point, Andrew, um, there there has been almost a romanticizing of so much of this. And I asked the question pertaining to the involvement of Italian-Americans in series like The Sopranos, because, again, I think sometimes we, we, we unwittingly give life to these misconceptions. And again, I want listeners to understand, while this dialogue today is is using as an example anti-Italian-American stereotypes, uh, you can insert racist or, or, or race here for a whole broad variety of minority groups in the United States today, some that are facing real consequences of racism and prejudice to the point of death in some cases. And I, I, what I'm trying to help you understand is this is bad in all forms, great and small, and it doesn't matter in the end whether you act out in violence against an Asian American because you somehow perceive that in one way or another they were responsible for bringing COVID to the United States, or you use a wink and a nod uh, adjective for an Italian-American or conclude that, yeah, they all must be involved in the mob. And all of these stereotypes are hurtful and, in the end, 
helps to not bring a nation together, but rather to more severely divide us. And, and again, as I as I point out, Andrew, I think we even have some degree of culpability in this. I, there, there's a story that goes back to the 1970s, around the time that The Godfather was being filmed in New York, and there were arguments made at the time, I don't know how true they are, uh, that the mob got involved and uh, they were trying to shut down filming at certain locations because they wanted to have a little bit of an influence in the script writing and were even able to put enough pressure on uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Paramount Studios uh, to uh, not refer to the quote-unquote mafia in the film. You'll hear, I think, a scant reference or two to La Cosa Nostra, but any outright references to the mafia were completely sanitized of that film, and there was a bit of a, um, I don't know what kind of a wink and an odd this was, but uh, oddly enough, the head of the Colombo crime family, Joseph Colombo, started something called the Italian-American Civil Rights League in the 1970s. Ironically, he was assassinated at one of the league's rallies, I think in Washington Square in New York. But there was, another, again, another example of where some of those stereotypes were being uh, unwittingly, or, or maybe wittingly, promoted even within the Italian-American community. So I guess there's a degree to which we also even have to police ourselves, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. We all, we all have to you know, peel that onion back. And, and really, rather than grab onto the stereotypes of other people, that make us in a perverse way feel better about ourselves? Well, at least we're not criminals like the Italian-Americans that are, hey, the only reason he's so successful must be because him or his father are an organized crime. Rather than doing that, let's know that there are differences. Gosh, that's what makes this country so great. But let's celebrate the differences. Let's celebrate the fact that Italian-Americans, for example, love their food love their families, and are incredibly compassionate people. Another, I think another stark um, relief on The Godfather, if you remember the scene, Craig, you've got the Godfather scene when Michael Corleone is ser- serving as the Godfather for his nephew. And at the same time, he's having the five heads of the other families knock off during this baptism. And you know, so you have this, this crime really el- ellipsing a, a baptismal rite. Well, I'd ask people to think about a different Italian American, um, Cardinal Bernardine from Chicago, the Archbishop of Chicago. His his lineage was from Northern Italy. He was accused near the end of his life of molestation. His accuser later recanted. What did Cardinal Bernardine do? He had a private meeting with him. He. He gave him anointing of the sick. He heard his confession. That's a real sacrament. That's a real meaning of what it is to be an Italian-American, what it is to be a human being. Those are the things that we should celebrate and we should aspire toward rather than grabbing those cheap, easy stereotypes that make us feel better about ourselves for the wrong reasons. And, you know, uh, to that point, and we're going to take a time out, we'll come back with some closing remarks, but to that very point, um, we look at the contributions of so many minority groups in this nation down through the entirety of our history, and these are people that should be celebrated, contributions that should be 
recognized that there are aspects which, I mean, imagine this, even at the height of World War II, if it wasn't for German Jews that escaped Nazi Germany to come here, uh, who knows what the outcome of that war, particularly with Japan, might have looked like. It was the contributions of Germans who helped us win the war through development of weapons that were able to bring to bring to a conclusion a nasty war that undoubtedly would have cost millions of more lives had it not been brought to a rapid end. So even in the middle of a war in which certain groups were recognized, quote-unquote, as our enemy, in fact, there were people in America of the same blood lineage that made tremendous contributions to our nation. We need to do a better job when it comes to celebrating the contributions of these individuals as opposed to tearing people down. Our visit today with best-selling author, trial attorney Andrew Anselmi. We'll get back to more of that discussion as Lifeline continues. Welcome back to the conversation, and we're continuing our visit today with best-selling author, trial attorney Andrew Anselmi. We're talking about anti-Italian American tropes. We're talking about widespread racism on the rise in America today. And, uh, Counselor, I'm curious. We've seen, for example, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, one of the freeways that I frequent has a huge sign that says, Stop Asian Hate. It's a poignant and important reminder, and it, it kind of takes me back to uh, what was sort of the, the watchword of the day following 9-11. We were encouraged that if we see something, to say something. Uh, is it the same matter in terms of approaching um, racism or um, uh, stereotypes, that if we hear somebody say something that is clearly a stereotype, no matter who it's against, it doesn't have to be just against us, against another minority group, against another group here in America. It is important when we hear it to call it out? Uh, absolutely. We, we, we not only need to call it out contemporaneously, but we also need to acknowledge the sins of the past. I was on the radio last week, on TV last week, in Canada TV, on the heels of Prime Minister Trudeau, who had just apologized to a Canadian American, a Canadian Italians, for their imprisonment during World War II. And I, I think it's it acts like that, that in the first instance, acknowledge the problem, educate people to the problem sensitize people so that there could be a, a greater appreciation and understanding not only of the hurt that's been suffered, but again, in those those virtues that should be embraced uh, in those. Folks. How do we deal I, with, I, I, I'm going to ask you a tough question here, how do we deal with things like, for example, um, in the wake of the tragic events that transpired just a year ago? Um, in in Minneapolis, and we've seen uh, now an attempt across the country to address many of these statues, some of whom, frankly, those of us here in California that never get exposed to them unless you travel to the East Coast, weren't even aware that uh, General Lee, for example, had so many uh, town squares dedicated to him. But we've seen a rise in things like a demand to tear down statues of Christopher Columbus. He, for decades, graced um, uh, here at Coit's Tower in San 
San Francisco. That statue has now been removed uh, based on perceptions of his involvement in the population of America and what ultimately happened with uh, the the impact on um, uh, Native Americans here in in the United States. How, how do we address some of these more delicate issues, in your opinion, where some people perceive somebody like Columbus to an Italian-American as a hero and somebody else says, yeah, but wait, look what he did, or look at the door that he opened. How do we address that? I think we address it in the first instance by listening to one another. As mm. I mentioned before, the whole reason we have Columbus Day was because of this massive lynching down in New Orleans. So anyone who wants to talk about Columbus Day, I'd love to have a discussion with them because no doubt it wasn't a seamless, uh, it isn't the seamless gilded history that we look back on. But I doubt those very same people appreciate why we even have a Columbus Day, uh, the hurt and the tragedy that was suffered um, by Italian-Americans. So I, I think in the first instance, Craig, it's listening to one another. And in terms of calling it out, I once heard Ely Wiesel give a lecture um, in which he defended calling it out because he's not so much going to convince the people around him to change, but the reason he shouts so loud is so that they don't change him. And I think we all need to take stock of that. The reason you need to shout loud and to call it out is so that you don't get changed by it. And I think one person at a time, one listener at a time, we become a better nation. You shared at the onset that um, your involvement in writing these um, two novels uh, has helped to not only illuminate your own feelings concerning uh, anti-Italian American sentiment in uh, in our nation today, but, but also to help educate your readers. If folks want to get information, a counselor, on where they can get copies of either the Iron Butterfly or Mezzogiorno trilogy, where can they get them? Amazon. Amazon is the best. Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's readily available. And um, all right, I've got thank, thank you very much, Craig. I appreciate that. Well, we appreciate your time. And again, uh, folks can get more information online uh, through the usual suspects, Amazon, uh, to order a copy of his best selling books, The Iron Butterfly and Mezzogiorno Trilogy. Trial attorney, best-selling author, Andrew Anselmi, thank you so much for being with us today. By the way, if you are personally interested uh, in the specific topic, and again, we've tried to address this from sort of the, the, the broader issue of addressing racism of all types and all forms, and to hear it and call it out in the moment, but in particular, if you're interested in getting more information about um, how to combat and address anti-Italian American stereotypes. The Sons and Orders of Italy has a commission for social justice and you can get more information by doing a simple Google search. Commission for Social Justice, Sons and Daughters of Italy. Our thanks to best-selling author, trial attorney Andrew Anselmi for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. We're coming up on 6 o'clock from KFAX, and you know what that means. We're going to get you a look at some headline news, take a look first in traffic, then back with more. Hour number two coming up ahead, but first, here's a look at traffic.